Disc two. Altogether, not much seemed to be known about the world, but at least it was a more interesting subject than ethics, which an old man taught to a class of us on Sunday afternoons. Ethics was why you should and shouldn't do things. Most of the don'ts were the same as my father's, but some of the reasons were different, so it was confusing. According to ethics, mankind—that、uh, was us in civilized parts—was in the process of climbing back into grace. We were following a faint and difficult trail, which led up to the peaks from which we had fallen. From the true trail branched many false trails that sometimes looked easier and more attractive. All these really led to the edges of precipices, beneath which lay the abyss of eternity. There was only one true trail. And by following it, we should, with God's help and in His own good time, regain all that had been lost. But so faint was the trail, so set with traps and deceits, that every step must be taken with caution, and it was too dangerous for a man to rely on his own judgment. Only the authorities, ecclesiastical and lay, were in a position to judge whether the next step was a rediscovery, and so safe to take. Or whether it deviated from the true reascent, and so was sinful. The penance of tribulation that had been put upon the world must be worked out, the long climb faithfully retraced, and at last, if the temptations by the way were resisted, there would be the reward of forgiveness, the restoration of the golden age. Such penances had been sent before: the expulsion from Eden, the flood. Pestilences, the destruction of the cities of the plain, the captivity, tribulation, had been another such punishment, but the greatest of all. It must, when it struck, have been like a combination of all these disasters. Why it had been sent was as yet unrevealed, but judging by precedent, there had very likely been a phase of irreligious arrogance prevailing at the time. Most of the numerous precepts. Arguments and examples in ethics were condensed for us into this: the duty and purpose of man in this world is to fight unceasingly against the evils that tribulation loosed upon it. Above all, he must see that the human form is kept true to the divine pattern in order that one day it may be permitted to regain the high place in which, as the image of God, it was set. However. I did not talk much about this part of ethics to Sophie. Not, I think, because I ever actually classified her in my mind as a deviation, but it had to be admitted that she did not quite qualify as a true image, so it seemed more tactful to avoid that aspect. And there were plenty of other things to talk about. Nobody at Wacknook seemed to trouble about me if I was out of sight. It was only when I hung about that they thought of jobs that needed doing. The season was a good one, sunny yet well watered, so that even farmers had little to complain of, other than the pressure to catch up with the work that the invasion had interrupted. Except among the sheep, the average of offences in the spring birth had been quite unusually low. The impending crops were so orthodox that the inspector had posted only a single field belonging to Angus Morton for burning. Even among the vegetables, there was little deviation. The solanaceae, as usual, provided most of what there was. All in all, the season looked like setting up a purity record, 
and condemnations were so few that even my father was pleased enough to announce guardedly in one of his addresses that Wacknock would seem to be giving the forces of evil quite a setback this year. And it was a matter for thanksgiving that retribution for the importation of the great horses had been visited upon their owner himself and not upon the whole community. With everyone so busy, I was able to get away early, and during those long summer days Sophie and I roamed more widely than before, though we did our adventuring with caution, and kept it to little-used ways in order to avoid encounters. Sophie's upbringing had given her a timidity towards strangers that was nearly an instinct. Almost before one was visible, she vanished noiselessly. The only adult she had made friends with was Corky, who looked after the steam engine. Everyone else was dangerous. We discovered a place up the stream where there were banks of shingle. I liked to take off my shoes, roll up my trousers and paddle there, examining the pools and crannies. Sophie used to sit on one of the large, flat stones that shelved into the water and watch me wistfully. Later we went there armed with two small nets that Mrs. Wender had made and a jar for the catch. I waded about fishing for the little shrimp-like creatures that lived there, while Sophie tried to scoop them up by reaching from the bank. She did not do very well at it. After a time she gave up and sat watching me enviously. Then, greatly daring, she pulled off a shoe and looked at her naked foot reflectively. After a minute she pulled off the other. She rolled her cotton trousers above her knees and stepped into the stream. She stood there for a thoughtful moment, looking down through the water at her feet on the washed pebbles. I called to her. Come over this way. There's lots of them here. She waded towards me, laughing and excited. When we had had enough of it, we sat on the flat rock, letting our feet dry in the sun. They're not really horrible, are they? she said, regarding hers judicially. They're not horrible at all. They make mine look all knobbly, I told her honestly. She was pleased about that. A few days later we went there again. We stood the jar on the flat stone beside our shoes while we fished, and industriously scampered back to it now and then with our catch, oblivious of all else until a voice said, Hello there, David. I looked up, aware of Sophie standing rigid behind me. The boy who had called stood on the bank, just above the rock where our things lay. I knew him, Alan, the son of John Irvin, the blacksmith, about two years older than I was. I kept my head. Oh, hello, Alan, I said unencouragingly. I waded to the rock and picked up Sophie's shoes. Catch, I called, as I threw them to her. One she caught, the other fell into the water, but she retrieved it. "'What are you doing?' Alan asked. I told him we were catching the shrimp things. As I said it, I stepped casually out of the water onto the rock. I had never cared much for what I knew of Alan at the best of times, and he was by no means welcome now. "'No, oh, dare no good. Fish are what you want to go after,' he said contemptuously. He turned his attention to Sophie, who was wading to the bank, shoes in hand, some yards further up. "'Who's she?' he inquired. I delayed answering while I put on my shoes. Sophie had disappeared into the bushes now. "'Who is she?' he repeated. "'She's not one of the—' 
he broke off suddenly. I looked up and saw that he was staring down at something beside me. I turned quickly. On the flat rock was a footprint, still undried. Sophie had rested one foot there as she bent over to tip her catch into the jar. The mark was still damp enough to show the print of all six toes quite clearly. I kicked over the jar. A cascade of water and struggling shrimps poured down the rock, obliterating the footprint, but I knew, with a sickly feeling, that the harm had been done. Oh, said Alan, and there was a gleam in his eye that I did not like. Who is she? he demanded again. She's a friend of mine, I told him. What's her name? I did not answer that. Huh. I'll soon find out anyway, he said with a grin. It's no business of yours, I told him. He took no notice of that. He turned and was standing looking along the bank towards the point where Sophie had disappeared into the bushes. I ran up the stone and flung myself on him. He was bigger than I was, but it took him by surprise, and we went down together in a whirl of arms and legs. All I knew of fighting was what I had learned from a few sharp scuffles. I simply hit out and did my furious best. My intention was to gain a few minutes for Sophie to put her shoes on and hide. If she had a little start, he would never be able to find her, as I knew from experience. Then he recovered from his first surprise and got in a couple of blows on my face which made me forget about Sophie and sent me at it tooth and nail on my own account. We rolled back and forth on a patch of turf. I kept on hitting and struggling furiously, but his weight started to tell. He began to feel more sure of himself, and I more futile. However, I had gained something. I'd stopped him going after Sophie straight away. Gradually, he got the upper hand. Presently, he was sitting astride of me, pummeling me as I squirmed. I kicked out and struggled, but there wasn't much I could do but raise my arms to protect my head. Then, suddenly, there was a yelp of anguish, and the blows ceased. He flopped down on top of me. I heaved him off and sat up to see Sophie standing there with a large, rough stone in her hand. I hit him, she said proudly, and with a touch of wonderment. Do you think he's dead? Hit him, she certainly had. He lay white-faced and still, with the blood trickling down his cheek. But he was breathing all right, so he certainly wasn't dead. Oh, dear, said Sophie in sudden reaction, and dropped the stone. We looked at Alan and then at one another. Both of us, I think, had the impulse to do something for him, but we were afraid. No one must ever know. No one, Mrs. Wender had said so intensely. And now this boy did know. It frightened us. I got up. I reached for Sophie's hand and pulled her away. Come along, I told her urgently. John Wender listened carefully and patiently while we told him about it. You're quite sure he saw? It wasn't simply that he was curious because Sophie was a stranger, he asked at the end. No, I said. He saw the footmark. That's why he wanted to catch her. He nodded slowly. I see, he said. And I was surprised how calmly he said it. He looked steadily at our faces. Sophie's eyes were big with a mixture of alarm and excitement. Mine must have been pink-rimmed with dirty smears trailing from them. He turned his head and met his wife's gaze steadily. 
I'm afraid it's come, my dear. This is it, he said. Oh, Johnny. Mrs. Wender's face was pale and distressed. Sorry, Marty, but it is, you know. I knew it had to come sooner or later. Thank God it's happened while I'm here. How long will it take you to be ready? Not long, Johnny. I've kept things nearly ready always. Good. Let's get busy then. He got up and went round the table to her. He put his arms round her, bent down and kissed her. Tears stood in her eyes. Oh, Johnny dear, why are you so sweet to me when all I've brought you is... He stopped that with another kiss. They looked steadily into one another's eyes for a moment. Then, without a word, they both turned to look at Sophie. Mrs. Wender became her usual self again. She went briskly to a cupboard, took out some food, and put it on the table. Wash first, you dirty things, she told us. Then eat this up, every bit of it. While I washed, I put the question I had wanted to ask often before. Mrs. Wender, if it's just Sophie's toes, couldn't you have cut them off when she was a little baby? I don't expect it would have hurt her much then, and, and nobody need have known. There'd have been marks, David, and when people saw them, they'd know why. Now hurry up and eat that supper, she told me, and went busily off into the other room. We're going away, Sophie confided to me presently, through a mouthful of pie. Going away, I repeated blankly. She nodded. Mummy said we'd have to go if anybody ever found out. We nearly did when you saw them. But you mean right away, never come back? I asked in dismay. Yes, I think so. I'd been hungry, but I suddenly lost my appetite. I sat fiddling with the food on my plate. The sounds of bustling and bumping elsewhere in the house took on an ominous quality. I looked across the table at Sophie. In my throat there was a lump that wouldn't be swallowed. Where? I asked unhappily. I don't know. A long way, though, she told me. We sat on. Sophie prattled between mouthfuls. I found it hard to swallow because of the lump. Everything was abruptly bleak to the horizon and beyond. Nothing I knew was going to be quite the same ever again. The desolation of the prospect engulfed me. I had to struggle hard to keep back tears. Mrs. Wender brought in a series of satchels and packs. I watched glumly as she dumped them close to the door and went away again. Mr. Wender came in from outside and collected some of them. Mrs. Wender reappeared and took Sophie away into the other room. The next time Mr. Wender came for some more of the packs, I followed him out. The two horses, Spot and Sandy, were standing there patiently with some bundles already strapped onto them. I was surprised not to see the cart and said so. John Wender shook his head. The cart keeps you to the tracks. With pack horses you go where you like, he told me. I watched him strapping more bundles on while I gathered courage. Mr. Wender, I said, please can't I come too? He stopped what he was doing and turned to look at me. We faced one another for some moments, then slowly, regretfully, he shook his head. He must have seen that tears were close behind my eyes, for he put his hand on my shoulder and let it rest there. Come along inside, Davy, 
he said, leading the way back to the house. Mrs. Wender was back in the living room, standing in the middle of the floor, looking round as if for things forgotten. He wants to come with us, Marty, said Mr. Wender. She sat down on a stool and held her arms out to me. I went to her, unable to speak. Looking over my head, she said, Oh, Johnny, that awful father, I'm afraid for him. Close to her, like that, I could catch her thoughts. They came faster, but easier to understand than words. I knew how she felt, how she genuinely wished I could go with them, how she leapt on without examining the reasons to knowing that I could not and must not go with them. I had the complete answer before John Wender had put the first sentence of his reply into ordinary words. I know, Marty, but it's Sophie I'm afraid for, and you. If we were to be caught, we'd be charged with kidnapping as well as concealment. If they take Sophie, nothing could make things worse for me, Johnny. But it's not just that, dear. Once they are satisfied that we are out of the district, we'll be someone else's responsibility, and they'll not bother much more about us. But if Storm were to lose his boy, there'd be hue and cry for miles around, and I doubt whether we'd have a chance of getting clear. They'd have posses out everywhere looking for us. We can't afford to increase the risk to Sophie, can we? Mrs. Wender was silent for some moments. I could feel her fitting the reasons into what she had known already. Presently her arm tightened round me. You do understand that, don't you, David? Your father would be so angry if you came with us that we'd have much less chance of getting Sophie away safely. I want you to come, but for Sophie's sake we daren't do it. Please be brave about it, David. You're her only friend, and you can help her by being brave. You will, won't you? The words were like a clumsy repetition. Her thoughts had been much clearer and I had already had to accept the inevitable decision. I could not trust myself to speak. I nodded dumbly, and let her hold me to her in a way my own mother never did. The packing up was finished a little before dusk. When everything was ready, Mr. Wender took me aside. Davy, he said, man to man, I know how fond you are of Sophie. You've looked after her like a hero. But now there's one more thing you can do to help her. Will you? Yes, I told him. What is it, Mr. Wender? It's this. When we've gone, don't go home at once. Will you stay here till tomorrow morning? That'll give us more time to get her safely away. Will you do that? Yes, I said reliably. We shook hands on it. It made me feel stronger and more responsible rather like I had on that first day when she twisted her ankle. Sophie held out her hand with something concealed in it as we came back. This is for you, David, she said, putting it in my hand. I looked at it. A curling lock of brown hair tied with a piece of yellow ribbon. I was still staring at it when she flung her arms around my neck and kissed me with more determination than judgment. Her father picked her up, and swung her high on top of the leading horse's load. Mrs. Wender bent to kiss me, too. Goodbye, David, dear. She touched my bruised cheek with a gentle forefinger. We'll never forget, she said, and her eyes were shiny. They set off. 
John Wender led the horses with his gun slung across his back and his left arm linked in his wife's. At the edge of the woods they paused and turned to wave. I waved back. They went on. The last I saw of them was Sophie's arm waving as the dusk beneath the trees swallowed them up. The sun was getting high, and the men were long ago out in the fields when I reached home. There was no one in the yard, but the inspector's pony stood at the hitching post near the door, so I guessed my father would be in the house. I hoped that I had stayed away long enough. It had been a bad night. I had started with a determinedly stout heart, but in spite of my resolutions it weakened somewhat when darkness fell. I had never before spent a night anywhere but in my own room at home. There everything was familiar, but the Wenders' empty house seemed full of queer sounds. I managed to find some candles and light them, and when I had blown up the fire and put some more wood on, that too helped to make the place less lonely, but only a little less. Odd noises kept on occurring inside and outside the house. For a long time I sat on a stool, pressing my back against the wall so that nothing should approach me unaware. More than once my courage all but gave out. I wanted painfully to run away. I liked to think it was my promise and the thought of Sophie's safety that kept me there. But I do remember also how black it looked outside, and how full of inexplicable sounds and movements the darkness seemed to be. The night stretched out before me in a prospect of terrors yet nothing actually happened. The sounds, like creeping footsteps, never brought anything into view. The tapping was no prelude to anything at all, nor were the occasional dragging noises. They were beyond explanation, but also, luckily, apparently beyond manifestation too. And at length, in spite of them all, I found my eyes blinking as I swayed on my stool. I summoned up courage and dared to move very cautiously across to the bed. I scrambled across it and very thankfully got my back to a wall again. For a time I lay watching the candles and the uneasy shadows they cast in the corners of the room and wondering what I should do when they were gone, when, all of a sudden, they were gone and the sun was shining in. I had found some bread for my breakfast in the Wenders' house, but I was hungry again by the time I reached home. That, however, could wait. My first intention was to get to my room unseen, with the very thin hope that my absence might not have been noticed, so that I would be able to pretend that I had merely overslept, but my luck was not running. Mary caught sight of me through the kitchen window as I was slipping across the yard. She called out, "'You come here at once.' Everybody's been looking all over for you. Where have you been? And then, without waiting for an answer, she added, Father's on the rampage. Better go to him before he gets worse. My father and the inspector were in the seldom-used, rather formal room at the front. I seemed to arrive at a crucial time. The inspector looked much as usual, but my father was thunderous. Come here, he snapped as soon as I appeared in the doorway. I went nearer reluctantly. Where have you been? he demanded. You've been out all night. Where? I did not answer. He fired half a dozen questions at me, looking farrier every second when I did not answer them. Come on now. Sullenness isn't going to help you. 
Who was this child, this blasphemy you were with yesterday? he shouted. I still did not reply. He glared at me. I had never seen him angrier. I felt sick with fright. The inspector intervened then. In a quiet, ordinary voice, he said to me, You know, David, concealment of a blasphemy, not reporting a human deviation, is a very, very serious thing. People go to prison for it. It is everybody's duty to report any kind of offence to me, even if they aren't sure, so that I can decide. It's always important, and very important indeed, if it is a blasphemy. And in this case, there doesn't seem to be any doubt about it, unless young Irvin was mistaken. Now, he says this child you were with has six toes. Is that true? No, I told him. He's lying, said my father. I see, said the inspector calmly. Well, then, if it isn't true, it can't matter if we know who she is, can it? He went on in a reasonable tone. I made no reply to that. It seemed the safest way. We looked at one another. Surely you see that so. If it is not true, he was going on persuasively, but my father cut him short. I'll deal with this. The boy's lying. To me, he added, go to your room. I hesitated. I knew well enough what that meant, but I knew too that with my father in his present mood, it would happen whether I told or not. I set my jaw and turned to go. My father followed, picking up a whip from the table as he came. That, said the inspector curtly, is my whip. My father seemed not to hear him. The inspector stood up. I said, that is my whip, he repeated with a hard, ominous note in his voice. My father checked his step. With an ill-tempered gesture, he threw the whip back on the table. He glared at the inspector and then turned to follow me. I don't know where my mother was. Perhaps she was afraid of my father. It was Mary who came and made little comforting noises as she dressed my back. She wept a little as she helped me into bed and then fed me some broth with a spoon. I did my best to put up a brave show in front of her, but when she had gone my tears soaked into my pillow. By now it was not so much the bodily hurts that brought them. It was bitterness, self-contempt, and abasement. In wretchedness and misery I clutched the yellow ribbon and the brown curl tight in my hand. I couldn't help it, Sophie, I sobbed. I couldn't help it. Chapter 6 In the evening, when I grew calmer, I found that Rosalind was trying to talk to me. Some of the others were anxiously asking what was the matter, too. I told them about Sophie. It wasn't a secret any more now. I could feel that they were shocked. I tried to explain that a person with a deviation, a small deviation at any rate, wasn't the monstrosity we had been told. It did not really make any difference. Not to Sophie, at any rate. They received that very doubtfully indeed. The things we had all been taught were against their acceptance, though they knew well enough that what I was telling them must be true to me. You can't lie when you talk with your thoughts. They wrestled with the novel idea that a deviation might not be disgusting and evil, not very successfully. In the circumstances they could not give me much consolation, 
and I was not sorry when one by one they dropped out, and I knew that they had fallen asleep. I was tired out myself, but sleep was a long time coming. I lay there, picturing Sophie and her parents plodding their way southward towards the dubious safety of the fringes, and hoping desperately that they would be far enough now for my betrayal not to hurt them. And then, when sleep did come, it was full of dreams. Faces and people moved restlessly through it, scenes, too. Once more there was the one where we all stood round in the yard while my father disposed of an offence which was Sophie, and I woke up from that hearing my own voice shouting to him to stop. I was frightened to go to sleep again, but I did, and that time it was quite different. I dreamed again of the great city by the sea with its houses and streets and the things that flew in the sky. It was years since I had dreamed about that, but it still looked just the same, and in some quite obscure way it soothed me. My mother looked in in the morning, but she was detached and disapproving. Mary was the one who took charge, and she decreed that there was to be no getting up that day. I was to lie on my front and not wriggle about, so that my back would heal more quickly. I took the instruction meekly, for it was certainly more comfortable to do as she said. So I lay there and considered what preparations I should have to make for running away, once I was about again and the stiffness had worn off. It would, I decided, be much better to have a horse, and I spent most of the morning concocting a plan for stealing one and riding away to the fringes. The inspector looked in in the afternoon, bringing with him a bag of buttery sweets. For a moment I thought of trying to get something out of him, casually, of course, about the real nature of the fringes. After all, as an expert on deviation, he might be expected to know more about them than anyone else. On second thoughts, however, I decided it would be unwise. He was sympathetic and kindly enough, but he was on a mission. He put his questions in a friendly way. Munching one of the sweets himself, he asked me, How long have you known that the Wender child... Uh, what is her name, by the way? I told him. There was no harm in that now. How long have you known that Sophie deviates? I didn't see that telling the truth could make things much worse. Quite a long time, I admitted. And how long would that be? About six months, I think, I told him. He raised his eyebrows and then looked serious. That's bad, you know, he said. It's what we call abetting a concealment. You must have known that was wrong, didn't you? I dropped my gaze. I wriggled uncomfortably under his straight look, and then stopped because it made my back twinge. It sort of didn't seem like the things they say in church, I tried to explain. Besides, they were awfully little toes. The inspector took another suite and pushed the bag back to me. And each foot shall have five toes, he quoted. You remember that? Yes, I admitted unhappily. Well, every part of the definition is as important as any other. And if a child doesn't come within it, then it isn't human. And that means it doesn't have a soul. It is not in the image of God. It is an imitation, and in the imitations there is always some mistake. Only God produces perfection. So although deviations may look like us in many ways... They cannot be really human. They are something quite different. I thought that over. But Sophie isn't really different, not in any other way, I told him. You'll find it easy to understand when you're older. 
But you do know the definition, and you must have realized Sophie deviated. Why didn't you tell your father or me about her? I explained about my dream of my father treating Sophie as he did one of the farm offenses. The inspector looked at me thoughtfully for some seconds, then he nodded. I see, he said. But blasphemies are not treated the same way as offenses. What happens to them? I asked. He evaded that. He went on. You know, it's really my duty to include your name in my report. However, as your father has already taken action, I may be able to leave it out. All the same, it is a very serious matter. The devil sends deviations among us to weaken us and tempt us away from purity. Sometimes he is clever enough to make a nearly perfect imitation. So we have always to be on the lookout for the mistake he has made, however small, and when we see one, it must be reported at once. You'll remember that in future, won't you? I avoided his eye. The inspector was the inspector, and an important person. All the same, I could not believe that the devil had sent Sophie. I found it hard to see how the very small toe on each foot could make much difference either. Sophie's my friend, I said, my best friend. The inspector kept on looking at me, then he shook his head and sighed. Loyalty is a great virtue, but there is such a thing as misplaced loyalty. One day you will understand the importance of a greater loyalty, the purity of the race. He broke off as the door opened. My father came in. They got them. All three of them, he said to the inspector, and gave a look of disgust at me. The inspector got up promptly, and they went out together. I stared at the closed door. The misery of self-reproach struck me so that I shook all over. I could hear myself whimpering as the tears rolled down my cheeks. I tried to stop it, but I couldn't. My hurt back was forgotten. The anguish my father's news had caused me was far more painful than that. My chest was so tight with it that it was choking me. Presently the door opened again. I kept my face to the wall. Steps crossed the room. A hand rested on my shoulder. The inspector's voice said, It wasn't that old man. You had nothing to do with it. A patrol picked them up quite by chance twenty miles away. A couple of days later, I said to Uncle Axel, I'm going to run away. He paused in his work and gazed thoughtfully at his saw. I'd not do that, he advised. It doesn't usually work very well. Besides, he added after a pause, where would you run to? That's what I wanted to ask you, I explained. He shook his head. Whatever district you're in, they want to see your normalcy certificate, he told me. Then they know who you are and where you're from. Not in the fringes, I suggested. He stared at me. Man alive, you'd not want to go to the fringes. Why, they've got nothing there, not even enough food. Most of them are half-starving, that's why they make the raids. No, you'd spend all the time there just trying to keep alive, and lucky if you did. But there must be some other places, I said. Only if you can find a ship that'll take you. And even then, he shook his head again. In my experience, he told me, if you run away from a thing just because you don't like it, you don't like what you find either. Now, running to a thing, that's a different matter. But what would you want to run to? 
Take it from me, it's a lot better here than it is most places. No, I'm against it, Davy. In a few years' time, when you're a man and can look after yourself, it may be different. I reckon it'd be better to stick it out till then, anyway. Much better than have them just catch you and bring you back. There was something in that. I was beginning to learn the meaning of the word humiliation and did not want any more of it at present. But from what he said, the question of where to go would not be easily solved even then. It looked as if it would be advisable to learn what one could of the world outside Labrador in preparation. I asked him what it was like. Godless, he told me. Very godless indeed. It was the sort of uninformative answer my father would have given. I was disappointed to have it from Uncle Axel and told him so. He grinned. All right, Davy boy, that's fair enough. So long as you not chatter, I'll tell you something about it. You mean it's secret? I asked, puzzled. Not quite that, he said. But when people are used to believing a thing is such and such a way, and the preachers want them to believe that that's the way it is, it's trouble you get, not thanks for upsetting their ideas. Sailors soon found that out in Rigo, so mostly they only talk about it now to other sailors. If the rest of the people want to think it's nearly all badlands outside, they let them. It doesn't alter the way it really is, but it does make for peace and quiet. My book says it's all badlands or bad fringes country, I told him. There are other books that don't, but you'll not see them about much, not even in Rigo, let alone in the backwoods here, he said. And mind you, it doesn't do to believe everything every sailor says either. And you're often not sure whether any couple of them are talking about the same place or not, even when they think they are. But when you've seen some of it, you begin to understand that the world's a much queerer place than it looks from Wacknock. So you'll keep it to yourself. I assured him I would. All right. Well, it's this way, he began. To reach the rest of the world... My uncle Axel explained. You start by sailing down river from Rigo until you get to the sea. They say that it's no good sailing on straight ahead, to the east, that is, because either the sea goes on forever or else it comes to an end suddenly and you sail over the edge, nobody knows for sure. If you make north and keep along the coast and still keep along when it turns west and then south, you reach the other side of Labrador. Or, if you keep straight on northwards, you come to colder parts, where there are a great many islands with not much living on them except birds and sea creatures. To the northeast, they say there is a great land where the plants aren't very deviational, and the animals and people don't look deviational, but the women are very tall and strong. They rule the country entirely and do all the work. They keep their men in cages until they are about twenty-four years old and then eat them. They also eat shipwrecked sailors. But as no one ever seems to have met anyone who has actually been there and escaped, it's difficult to see how that can be known. Still, there it is. No one has ever come back denying it either. The only way I know is south. I've been south three times. To get there, you keep the coast to starboard as you leave the river. After a couple of hundred miles or so, you come to the Straits of Newf. As the Straits widen out, you keep the coast of Newf to port and call in at Lark for fresh water, and provisions too, if the new people will let you have any. After that you bear southeast a while, and then south, and pick up the mainland coast again to starboard. When you reach it, you find it is badlands, or at least very bad fringes. There's plenty growing there, but sailing close inshore you can see that nearly all of it is deviational. 
There are animals, too, and most of them look as if it had been difficult to classify them as offences against any known kinds. A day or two sail further on, there's plenty of Badlands coastline, with no doubt about it. Soon you're following round a big bay, and you get to where there are no gaps. It's all Badlands. When sailors first saw those parts, they were pretty scared. They felt they were leaving all purity behind, and sailing further and further away from God, where he'd not be able to help them. Everybody knows that if you walk on Badlands, you die, and they none of them expected ever to see them so close with their own eyes. But what worried them most, and worried the people they talked to when they got back, was to see how the things which are against God's laws of nature flourish there, just as if they had a right to. And a shocking sight it must have been at first, too. You can see giant, distorted heads of corn growing higher than small trees. Big saprophytes growing on rocks with their roots trailing out on the wind like bunches of hair, fathoms long. In some places there are fungus colonies that you'd take at first sight for big white boulders. You can see succulents like barrels, but as big as small houses and with spines ten feet long. There are plants which grow on the cliff tops and send thick green cables down a hundred feet and more into the sea. And you wonder whether it's a land plant that's got to the salt water or a sea plant that somehow climbed ashore. There are hundreds of kinds of queer things and scarcely a normal one among them. It's a kind of jungle of deviations going on for miles and miles. There don't seem to be many animals, but occasionally you catch sight of one, though you'd never be able to name it. There are a fair number of birds, though. Seabirds, mostly. And once or twice people have seen big things flying in the distance, too far away to make out anything except that the motion didn't look right for birds. It's a weird, evil land, and many a man who sees it suddenly understands what might happen here if it weren't for the purity laws and the inspectors. It's bad, but it isn't the worst. Further south still you begin to find patches where only coarse plants grow, and poorly at that, and soon you come to stretches of coast and land behind it, twenty, thirty, forty miles long, maybe, where nothing grows, nothing at all. The whole seaboard is empty, black and harsh and empty. The land behind looks like a huge desert of charcoal. Where there are cliffs, they are sharp-edged with nothing to soften them. There are no fish in the sea there, no weed either, not even slime. And when a ship has sailed there, the barnacles and the fouling on her bottom drop off and leave her hull clean. You don't see any birds. Nothing moves at all except the waves breaking on the black beaches. It's a frightful place. Masters order their ships well out for fear of it, and very relieved the sailors are to keep clear. And yet it can't always have been like that, because there was one ship whose captain was foolhardy enough to sail close inshore. Her crew were able to make out great stone ruins. They were all agreed that they were far too regular to be natural, and they thought they might be the remains of one of the old people's cities. But nobody knows any more about them. Most of the men in that ship wasted away and died, and the rest were never the same afterwards, so no other ship has risked keeping close in. For hundreds of miles the coast goes on being badlands with stretches of the dead black lands. 
So far, in fact, that the first ships down there gave up and turned about because they thought they would never reach any place where they could water and provision. They came back saying that they thought it must go on like that to the ends of the earth. The preachers and the church people were pleased to hear it, for that was very much what they had been teaching, and for a time it made people lose interest in exploring. But later on curiosity revived, and better found ships sailed south again. An observer on one of these, a man called Martha, wrote in a journal which he published something like this. The black coasts would appear to be an extreme form of badlands. Since any close approach to them is likely to be fatal, nothing can be said of them with certainty but that they are entirely barren and in some regions are known to glow dimly on a dark night. Such study as has been possible at a distance, however, does not confirm the view of the right-wing church party that they are the result of unchecked deviation. There is no evidence, whatever, that they are a form of sore on the earth's surface destined to spread to all impure regions. Indeed, the contrary appears more likely. This is to say that just as wild country becomes tractable and badlands country slowly gives way to habitable fringes country, so it would seem are the blacklands contracting within the badlands. Observations at the necessary distance cannot be detailed, but such as have been made indicate consistently that living forms are in the process, although in the most profane shapes, of encroaching upon this fearsome desolation. That was one of the parts of the journal that got Martha into a lot of trouble with orthodox people, for it implied that deviations so far from being a curse were performing, however slowly, a work of reclamation. Along with half a dozen more heresies, it landed Martha in court, and started agitation for a ban on further exploration. In the middle of all the fuss, however, a ship called the Venture, which had long been given up for lost, came sailing home to Rigel. She was battered and undermanned, her canvas was patched, her mizzen jury-rigged, and her condition foul, but she triumphantly claimed the honour of being the first to reach the lands beyond the black coasts. She brought back a number of objects, including gold and silver and copper ornaments and a cargo of spices to prove it. The evidence had to be accepted, but there was a lot of trouble over the spices, for there was no means of telling whether they were deviational or the product of a pure strain. Strict churchgoers refused to touch them for fear they might be tainted. Other people preferred to believe that they were the kinds of spices referred to in the Bible. Whatever they were, they are profitable enough now for ships to sail south in search of them. The lands down there aren't civilized. Mostly they don't have any sense of sin there, so they don't stop deviations. And where they do have a sense of sin, they've got it mixed up. A lot of them aren't ashamed of mutants. It doesn't seem to worry them when children turn out wrong, provided they're right enough to live and to learn to look after themselves. Other places, though, you'll find deviations who think they're normal. There's one tribe where both the men and women are hairless and they think that hair is the devil's mark. And there's another where they all have white hair and pink eyes. In one place, they don't think you're properly human unless you have webbed fingers and toes. In another, they don't allow any woman who is not multi-breasted to have children. You'll find islands where the people are all thick-set, and others where they're thin. There are even said to be some islands where both the men and women would be passed as true images 
if it weren't that some strange deviation has turned them all completely black. Though even that's easier to believe than the one about a race of deviations that has dwindled to two feet high, grown fur and a tail, and taken to living in trees. All the same, it's queerer there than you'd ever credit. Pretty nearly anything seems possible once you've seen it. It's pretty dangerous in those parts, too. The fish and the other things in the sea are bigger and fiercer than they are here. And when you do go ashore, you never know how the local deviations are going to take you. Some places they are friendly, in others they shoot poisoned arrows at you. On one island they throw bombs made of pepper wrapped in leaves, and when it gets in your eyes they charge with spears. You just never know. Sometimes, when the people are friendly, you can't understand a thing they're trying to say, and they can't understand you. But more often, if you listen a bit, you'll find out that a lot of their words are like our own, but pronounced differently. And you find out some strange, disturbing things. They all have pretty much the same legends of the old people as we have. How they could fly, how they used to build cities that floated on the sea, how any one of them could speak to any other, even hundreds of miles away, and so on. But what's more worrying is that most of them, whether they have seven fingers or four arms or hair all over or six breasts or whatever it is that's wrong with them, think that their type is the true pattern of the old people and anything different is a deviation. That seems silly at first. But when you find more and more kinds just as convinced of it as we are ourselves, well, you begin to wonder a bit. You start asking yourself, well, what real evidence have we got about the true image? You find that the Bible doesn't say anything to contradict the people of that time being like us, but on the other hand, it doesn't give any definition of man either. No, the definition comes from Nicholson's repentances, and he admits that he was writing some generations after tribulation came. So you find yourself wondering whether he knew he was in the true image, or whether he only thought he was. Uncle Axel had a lot more to say about southern parts than I can remember, and it was all very interesting in its way, but it didn't tell me what I wanted to know. At last, I asked him point blank, Uncle Axel, are there any cities there? Cities? he repeated. Well, here and there you'll find a town of a kind, as big as Kentuck, maybe, but built differently. No, I told him, I mean big places. I described the city in my dream, but without telling him it was a dream. He looked at me oddly. No, I never heard of any place like that, he told me. Further on, perhaps. Further than you went, I suggested. He shook his head. You can't go further on. The sea gets full of weed. Masses of weed with stems like cables. A ship can't make her way through it, and it's trouble enough to get clear of it once you get in it at all. Oh, I said, you're quite sure there's no city? Sure, he said. We'd have heard of it by this time if there was. I was disappointed. It sounded as if running away to the south, even if I could find a ship to take me, would be little better than running away to the fringes. For a time I had hoped... But now I had to go back to the idea that the city I dreamt of must be one of the old people's cities after all. Uncle Axel went on talking about the doubts of the true image that his voyage had given him, 
He laboured it rather a lot, and after a while he broke off to ask me directly. You understand, don't you, Davy, why I've been telling you all this? I was not sure that I did. Moreover, I was reluctant to admit the flaw in the tidy, familiar orthodoxy I had been taught. I recalled a phrase which I had heard a number of times. You lost your faith? I inquired. Uncle Axel snorted and pulled a face. Preacher words, he said, and thought for a moment. I'm telling you, he went on, that a lot of people saying that a thing is so doesn't prove it is so. I'm telling you that nobody, nobody really knows what is the true image. They all think they know, just as we think we know, but for all we can prove, the old people themselves may not have been the true image. He turned and looked long and steadily at me again. So, he said, how am I, and how is anyone, to be sure that this difference that you and Rosalind have does not make you something nearer to the true image than other people are? Perhaps the old people were the image. Very well, then. One of the things they say about them is they could talk to one another over long distances. Now, we can't do that, but you and Rosalind can. Just think that over, Davy. You two may be nearer to the image than we are. I hesitated for perhaps a minute and then took a decision. It isn't just Rosalind and me, Uncle Axel, I told him. There are others, too. He was startled. He stared at me. Others, he repeated. Who are they? How many? I shook my head. I don't know who they are. Not names, I mean. Names don't have any thinking shapes, so we've never bothered. You just know who's thinking like you know who's talking. I only found out who Rosalind was by accident. He went on looking at me seriously, uneasily. How many of you? he repeated. Eight, I told him. There were nine, but one of them stopped about a month ago. That's what I wanted to ask you, Uncle Axel. Do you think somebody found out? He just stopped suddenly. We've been wondering if anybody knows. You see, if they found out about him... I let him draw the inference himself. Presently he shook his head. I don't think so. We should be pretty sure to have heard of it. Perhaps he's gone away. Did he live near here? I think so. I don't really know, I said. But I'm sure he'd have told us if he was going away. He'd have told you if he thought anybody had found out, too, wouldn't he? He suggested. Looks to me more as if it had been an accident of some kind, being quite sudden like that. You'd like me to try to find out? Yes, please. It's made some of us afraid, I explained. Very well, he nodded. I'll see if I can. It was a boy, you say, not very far from here, probably, about a month ago. Any more? I told him what I could, which was very little. It was a relief to know that he would try to find out what had happened. Now that a month had gone by without a similar thing happening to any of the rest of us, we were less anxious than we had been, but still far from easy. Before we parted, he returned to his earlier advice to remember that no one could be certain of the true image. Later... I understood why he gave it. I realized, too, that he did not greatly care what was the true image. Whether he was wise or not in trying to forestall both the alarm and the sense of inferiority that he saw lying in wait for us when we should become better aware of ourselves and our difference, I cannot say. It might have been better to have left it a while. On the other hand, perhaps it did do something to lessen the distress of the awakening. At any rate, I decided for the moment, 
not to run away from home. The practical difficulties looked formidable. Chapter 7 The arrival of my sister, Petra, came as a genuine surprise to me, and a conventional surprise to everyone else. There had been a slight, not quite attributable, sense of expectation about the house for the previous week or two, but it remained unmentioned and unacknowledged. For me, the feeling that I was being kept unaware of something afoot was unresolved until there came a night when a baby howled. It was penetrating, unmistakable, and certainly within the house, where there had been no baby the day before. But in the morning nobody referred to the sound in the night. No one, indeed, would dream of mentioning the matter openly until the inspector should have called to issue his certificate that it was a human baby in the true image. Should it unhappily turn out to violate the image and thus be ineligible for a certificate, everyone would continue to be unaware of it, and the whole regrettable incident would be deemed not to have occurred. As soon as it was light, my father sent a stable hand off on a horse to summon the inspector, and, pending his arrival, the whole household tried to disguise its anxiety by pretending we were just starting another ordinary day. The pretense grew thinner as time went on, for the stable hand, instead of bringing back the inspector forthwith, as was to be expected when a man of my father's position and influence was concerned, returned with a polite message that the inspector would certainly do his best to find time to pay a call in the course of the day. It is very unwise for even a righteous man to quarrel with his local inspector and call him names in public. The inspector has too many ways of hitting back. My father became very angry, the more so since the conventions did not allow him to admit what he was angry about. Furthermore, he was well aware that the inspector intended him to be angry. He spent the morning hanging around the house and yard, exploding with bad temper now and then over trivial matters, so that everyone crept about on tiptoe and worked very hard indeed in order not to attract his attention. One did not dare to announce a birth until the child had been officially examined and approved, and the longer the formal announcement was delayed, the more time the malicious had to invent reasons for the delay. A man of standing looked to having the certificate granted at the earliest possible moment. With the word baby, unmentionable and unhintable, we all had to go on pretending that my mother was in bed for some slight cold or other indisposition. My sister Mary disappeared now and then towards my mother's room, and for the rest of the time tried to hide her anxiety by loudly bossing the household girls. I felt compelled to hang about in order not to miss the announcement when it should come. My father kept on prowling. The suspense was aggravated by everyone's knowledge that on the last two similar occasions there had been no certificate forthcoming. My father must have been well aware, and no doubt the inspector was aware of it too, that there was plenty of silent speculation whether my father would, as the law allowed, send my mother away, if this occasion should turn out to be similarly unfortunate. Meanwhile, since it would have been both impolite and undignified to go running after the inspector, there was nothing to be done but bear the suspense as best we could. It was not until mid-afternoon that the inspector ambled up on his pony. My father pulled himself together and went out to receive him. The effort to be even formally polite nearly strangled him. Even then the inspector was not brisk. 
he dismounted in a leisurely fashion and strolled into the house chatting about the weather. Father, red in the face, handed him over to Mary, who took him along to Mother's room, then followed the worst wait of all. Mary said afterwards that he hummed and hard for an unconscionable time while he examined the baby in minutest detail. At last, however, he emerged with an expressionless face. In the little-used sitting-room he sat down at the table and fussed for a while about getting a good point on his quill. At last he took a form from his pouch, and in a slow, deliberate hand wrote that he officially found the child to be a true female human being, free from any detectable form of deviation. He regarded that thoughtfully for some moments, as though not perfectly satisfied. He let his hand hesitate before he actually dated and signed it, then he sanded it carefully and handed it to my enraged father, still with a faint air of uncertainty. He had, of course, no real doubt in his mind, or he would have called for another opinion. My father was perfectly well aware of that, too. At last, Petra's existence could be admitted. I was formally told that I had a new sister, and presently I was taken to see her where she lay in a crib beside my mother's bed. She looked so pink and wrinkled to me that I did not see how the inspector could have been quite sure about her. However, there was nothing obviously wrong with her, so she had got her certificate. Nobody could blame the inspector for that. She did appear to be as normal as a newborn baby ever looks. While we were taking turns to look at her, somebody started to ring the stable bell in the customary way. Everyone on the farm stopped work, and very soon we were all assembled in the kitchen for prayers of thanksgiving. Two, or it may have been three, days after Petra was born, I happened upon a piece of my family's history that I would prefer not to have known. I was sitting quietly in the room next to my parents' bedroom, where my mother still lay in bed. It was a matter of chance, and strategy too. It was the latest place that I had found to stay hidden a while after the midday meal, until the coast was clear and I could slip away without being given an afternoon job. So far, nobody had thought of looking there for me. It was simply a matter of putting in half an hour or so. Normally the room was very convenient, though just at present its use required caution because the wattle wall between the rooms was cracked, and I had to move very cautiously on tiptoe lest my mother should hear me. On that particular day, I was just thinking that I had allowed nearly enough time for people to be busy again, when a two-wheeled trap drove up. As it passed the window, I had a glimpse of my Aunt Harriet holding the reins. I had only seen her some eight or nine times, for she lived fifteen miles away in the Kentak direction. But what I knew of her I liked. She was some three years younger than my mother. Superficially, they were not dissimilar, and yet, in Aunt Harriet, each feature had been a little softened, so that the effect of all of them together was different. I used to feel when I looked at her that I was seeing my mother as she might have been, as I thought I would have liked her to be. She was easier to talk to, too. She did not have a somewhat damping manner of listening only to correct. I edged over carefully on stocking feet to the window, watched her tether the horse, pick a white bundle out of the trap, and carry it into the house. She cannot have met anyone, for a few seconds later her steps passed the door, and the latch of the next room clicked. Why, Harriet? 
my mother's voice exclaimed in surprise, and not altogether in approval. So soon? You don't mean to say you've brought a tiny baby all that way? I know, said Aunt Harriet's voice, accepting the reproof in my mother's tone. But I had to, Emily, I had to. I heard your baby had come early, so I... Oh, there she is. Oh, she's lovely, Emily. She's a lovely baby. There was a pause. Presently she added, Mine's lovely too, isn't she? Isn't she a lovely darling? There was a certain amount of mutual congratulation which did not interest me a lot. I didn't suppose the babies looked much different from other babies, really. My mother said, I am glad, my dear. Henry must be delighted. Of course he is, said Aunt Harriet. But there was something wrong about the way she said it. Even I knew that. She hurried on. She was born a week ago. I, I didn't know what to do. Then when I heard your baby had come early and was a girl too, it was like God answering a prayer. She paused, and then added with a casualness which somehow failed to be casual. You've got the certificate for her? Of course. My mother's tone was sharp, ready for offence. I knew the expression which went with the tone. When she spoke again, there was a disturbing quality in her voice. Harriet, she demanded sharply, are you going to tell me that you have not got a certificate? My aunt made no reply, but I thought I caught the sound of a suppressed sob. My mother said coldly, forcibly, Harriet, let me see that child properly. For some seconds I could hear nothing but another sob or two from my aunt. Then she said unsteadily, It's such a little thing, you see, it's nothing much. Nothing much, snapped my mother. You have the effrontery to bring your monster into my house and tell me it's nothing much. Monster? Aunt Harriet's voice sounded as though she had been slapped. Oh, oh, she broke into little moanings. After a time, my mother said, No wonder you didn't dare to call the inspector. Aunt Harriet went on crying. My mother let the sobs almost die away before she said, I'd like to know why you have come here, Harriet. Why did you bring it here? Aunt Harriet blew her nose. When she spoke, it was in a dull, flat voice. When she came, when I saw her, I wanted to kill myself. I knew they would never approve her, although it's such a little thing. But I didn't, because I thought perhaps I could save her somehow. I love her. She's a lovely baby, except for that. She is, isn't she? My mother said nothing. Aunt Harriet went on. I didn't know how, but I hoped. I knew I could keep her for a little while before they'd take her away, just the month they give you before you have to notify I decided I must have her for that long at least. And Henry? What does he say? He... he said we ought to notify at once, but I wouldn't let him. I couldn't, Emily, I couldn't. Dear God, not a third time. I kept her and prayed and prayed and hoped. And then when I heard your baby had come early, I thought perhaps God had answered my prayers. Indeed, Harriet, said my mother coldly. I doubt whether that had anything to do with it. Nor, she added pointedly, do I see what you mean. I thought, 
Aunt Harriet went on, spiritlessly now, but forcing herself to the words. I thought that if I could leave my baby with you and borrow yours... My mother gave an incredulous gasp. Apparently words eluded her. It would only be for a day or two, just while I could get the certificate. Aunt Harriet went doggedly on. You are my sister, Emily, my sister, and the only person in the world who can help me to keep my baby. She began to cry again. There was another longish pause, then my mother's voice. In all my life, I have never heard anything so outrageous. To come here suggesting that I should enter into an immoral, a criminal conspiracy to... I think you must be mad, Harriet. To think that I should lend... She broke off at the sound of my father's heavy step in the passage. Joseph, she told him as he entered, send her away. Tell her to leave the house and take that with her. But, said my father in a bewildered tone, but it's Harriet, my dear. My mother explained the situation fully. There wasn't a sound from Aunt Harriet. At the end, he demanded incredulously, Is this true? Is this why you've come here? Slowly, wearily, Aunt Harriet said, This is the third time. They'll take my baby away again like they took the others. I can't stand that, not again. Henry will turn me out, I think. He'll find another wife who can give him proper children. There'll be nothing, nothing in the world for me. Nothing. I came here hoping against hope for sympathy and help. Emily is the only person who can help me. I can see now how foolish I was to hope at all. Nobody said anything to that. Very well. I understand. I'll go now, she told them in a dead voice. My father was not a man to leave his attitude in doubt. I do not understand how you dared come here to a God-fearing house with such a suggestion, he said. Worse still, you don't show an atom of shame or remorse. Aunt Harriet's voice was steadier as she answered. Why should I? I've done nothing to be ashamed of. I am not ashamed. I am only beaten. Not ashamed, repeated my father. Not ashamed of producing a mockery of your maker. Not ashamed of trying to tempt your own sister into criminal conspiracy. He drew a breath and launched off in pulpit style. The enemies of God besiege us. They seek to strike at him through us. Unendingly, they work to distort the true image. Through our weaker vessels, they attempt to defile the race. You have sinned, woman. Search your heart, and you will know that you have sinned. Your sin has weakened our defenses, and the enemy has struck through you. You wear the cross on your dress to protect you, but you have not worn it always in your heart. You have not kept constant vigilance for impurity, so there has been a deviation. And deviation, any deviation from the true image is blasphemy, no less. You have produced a defilement. One poor little baby, 
a baby which, if you were to have your way, would grow up to breed, and breeding spread pollution until all around us there would be mutants and abominations. That is what has happened in places where the will and faith were weak. Here it shall never happen. Our ancestors were of the true stock. They have handed on a trust. Are you to be permitted to betray us all, to cause our ancestors to have lived in vain? Shame on you, woman. Now go. Go home in humility, not defiance. Notify your child according to law. Then do your penances that you may be cleansed and pray. You have much to pray for. Not only have you blasphemed by producing a false image, but in your arrogance you have set yourself against the law and sinned in intent. I am a merciful man. I shall make no charge of that. It will be for you to clean it from your conscience, to go down on your knees and pray. Pray that your sin of intention, as well as your other sins, may be forgiven you. There were two light footsteps. The baby gave a little whimper as Aunt Harriet picked it up. She came towards the door and lifted the latch, then she paused. I shall pray, she said. Yes, I shall pray. She paused, then she went on, her voice steady and harder. I shall pray God to send charity into this hideous world, and sympathy for the weak, and love for the unhappy and unfortunate. I shall ask him if it is indeed his will that a child should suffer and its soul be damned for a little blemish of the body. And I shall pray him, too, that the hearts of the self-righteous may be broken. Then the door closed, and I heard her pass slowly along the passage. I moved cautiously back to the window and watched her come out and lay the white bundle gently in the trap. She stood looking down on it for a few seconds. Then she unhitched the horse, climbed up onto the seat, and took the bundle onto her lap with one arm guarding it in her cloak. She turned and left a picture that is fixed in my mind. The baby cradled in her arm, her cloak half open, showing the upper part of the brown, braid-edged cross on her fawn dress eyes that seemed to see nothing as they looked towards the house from a face set hard as granite. Then she shook the reins and drove off. Behind me in the next room my father was saying, Heresy too. The attempt at substitution could be overlooked. Women sometimes get strange ideas at such times. I was prepared to overlook it, providing the child is notified. But heresy is a different matter. She is a dangerous as well as a shameless woman. I could never have believed such wickedness in a sister of yours. And for her to think that you might abet her when she knows that you yourself have had to make your own penances twice, to speak heresy in my house too, that cannot be allowed to pass. Perhaps she did not realize what she was saying, my mother's voice said uncertainly. Then it is time she did... It is our duty to see that she does. My mother started to answer, but her voice cracked. She began to cry. I had never heard her cry before. My father's voice went on explaining about the need for purity in thought as well as in heart and conduct, and its very particular importance to women. He was still talking when I tiptoed away. 
I could not help feeling a great curiosity to know what was the little thing that had been wrong with the baby, wondering if, perhaps, it were just an extra toe, like Sophie's. But I never found out what it was. When they broke the news to me next day that my Aunt Harriet's body had been found in the river, no one mentioned a baby. End of Disc 2